is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. I don't know about you, but I'm worried about the 2022 midterm elections. Like, really worried. Watching this unfold is like watching a slow-motion car crash. You know it's going to be bad, but you just can't look away. The same is happening here, and I fear it will ultimately lead to the Democrats losing both the House and Senate in 2022. This is a fucking nightmare scenario. I mean, just imagine Kevin fucking McCarthy as Speaker of the House. Donald Trump, for all intents and purposes, would become an unelected king, calling the shots from Mar-a-Lago with zero control or oversight. In essence, the lunatics would be back in control of the asylum. 234 years ago, the founding Caucasian Fathers of America gave us the Second Amendment. Time's running out, Richard. We're coming after you and every mother that stole this election with our Second Amendment. You will be served lead. Just the thought of this keeps me up at night, and I already sleep poorly. One of the last remaining checks against a resurgent MAGA agenda is the prosecution and incarceration of its leader, followed by the imprisonment of its most ardent supporters. We've seen evidence of this with the subpoenas handed down from the January 6th committee, but hearings are a long way from trial. The subpoenas uh, that were just issued are really directed at the organizers of the rally, uh, people who helped fund it, people who sought the permits, They were campaign people. And we need to understand what was afoot here. From the very beginning, we've needed to find out who funded it, who planned it. You know, there was a mob that said they wanted to kill Vice President Pence, wanted to kill the Speaker, wanted to overturn the election. We need to find out everything about how that happened. And this is a step to do that. I have said time and time again, it's Manhattan District Court where all this stops. Cy Vance and Mark Pomerantz are slowly and methodically building a case that sticks, and when the net finally drops, there will be no escape for Donald Trump. That said, let's look at where things stand with the former president legally all across the board, if only to make myself feel better that Trump will eventually be stopped. I will not be the least bit surprised if Donald runs again, and he may even get the Republicans to nominate him again because they blew their opportunity on January 6th to separate themselves from him. But between now and the 2024 election, he's going to be indicted probably more than once. New York State's almost certainly going to bring a racketeering charge, an Article 460 case against him under New York State law. And he's going to have lots of other problems. In a new 109-page report, D.C. think tank, the Brookings Institute, analyzed publicly available evidence concerning Trump's and his allies' efforts to pressure Georgia officials to change the lawful outcome of the election, concluding that the 45th president could be charged with multiple crimes. President Trump's repeated interference with the election administration in Georgia his efforts to solicit and threaten senior state officials to certify the election for him falsely and to find exactly enough votes to rig the election back for him, that was a crime. And whatever he wants to say on stage, however much he might want to make fun of Secretary Raffensperger, I'm confident that in the end the facts will come out and that the Fulton County District Attorney who's investigating 
uh, will lead her wherever the facts and the law require. Obviously, one of the least helpful things Trump has going for him is his infamous phone call to Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on January 3rd, during which Trump implored the dude to find 11,780 votes to overturn Joe Biden's win in the state. There's no way I lost Georgia, Trump said numerous times throughout the call. Though of course he did. There's no way. We won by hundreds of thousands of votes. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Because we won the state. The report also notes that Trump both publicly pressured and personally contacted a number of Republican officials in the state, including Attorney General Chris Carr and Governor Brian Kemp, to keep their help in declaring him the victor. This was a case where he was calling senior state officials, most notably Secretary of State Raffensperger and a chief investigator in his office, Francis Watson, on December 23rd, and urging them to vary from state election procedures, and in Raffensperger's case, to find 11,780 ballots, the exact number necessary to alter the election outcome. Looking at a fact pattern like that, there's a strong case that President Trump committed the Georgia crime of solicitation of election fraud. That what he was doing here was soliciting Secretary Raffensperger with the intent that Secretary Raffensperger perform a certain act And that act was itself a crime, the crime that you just described, the crime of tampering with ballots, tampering with the vote tabulation in the state. So I think looking at that, you'd probably see it charged as a solicitation offense, maybe a conspiracy offense. It could even help support a charge of intentional interference with the carrying out of public duties by a public officer. Again, in this case, Secretary Raffensperger. So there's numerous avenues through which President Trump's conduct could give rise to criminal liability here. Referencing the fact that Trump would likely claim that everything he did was just part of his job as president, the report declares, stated simply, soliciting and then threatening senior state officials to alter the outcome of a presidential election does not fall within any reasoned conception of the scope of presidential power. It's where you have a candidate calling up and threatening senior state officials if they do not falsely alter the final count of votes to alter the outcome of the election in the state. Frankly, if that weren't a crime, you would think that we need to go rewrite the criminal laws to make sure that it is. The spokesman for Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Williams told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution last week that the investigation is active and ongoing but declined to reveal any details. Well, the way your investigation has been reported in the press, um, and as I understand it, is that it is centered on, but not limited to, this phone call that former President Trump made to Georgia Secretary of State uh, Brad Raffensperger. Is that a fair way to understand it? Absolutely. Um, I've been in this business now for 25 years. 19 of those years have been spent as a prosecutor. Um, What I know about investigations is they're kind of like peeling back an onion. And as you go through each layer, you learn different things. To be a responsible prosecutor, you must look at all of those things in investigation. To be fair to everyone involved, um, this is a very important matter, as you've already highlighted. And so, yes, the investigation seems that it will go past just this one phone call that we've discussed and that you played for your viewers. Prosecutors have reportedly appeared before a grand jury seeking subpoenas for witnesses and documents. 
hired the state's top experts on racketeering and conspiracy laws, interviewed at least four of Raffensperger's closest advisors, and started coordinating with the congresspeople probing the events surrounding January 6th. Trump's advisors have reacted to the Georgia probe exactly how one would expect if one paid attention for the last five years. This is simply the Democrats' latest attempt to score political points by continuing their witch hunt against President Trump. And everybody sees through it, Jason Miller said in a statement following the launch of the investigation in the spring. Get the fuck out of here. Meanwhile, back in Gotham, Cy Vance and his team of superior prosecutors are busy tightening the noose around Trump and his family as they begin investigating whether or not Ivanka... Eric and Dummy Don Jr. aided their father in committing a fraud. But let's rewind for a moment. Here's where things stand with the case. So far, the Manhattan District Attorney has levied 15 charges against the Trump Organization and its longtime CFO, Alan Weisselberg. Both parties have pled not guilty to all counts, which include criminal tax fraud, grand larceny, falsifying business records, and scheming to defraud the government. But there are also at least three other criminal inquiries, numerous lawsuits, and an investigation by the New York Attorney General's office, which is about to get a shitload of key documents, no thanks to the ex-president's company. My sense is that we are going to be looking at some uh, indictments imminently. Um... I spoke to Michael Cohen, and Michael has, you know, said to me, "Look, I have spoken to Cy Vance's office and Tish James office over a dozen times. They've met, and for hours and hours and hours and hours. And the government is not doing this to not do something. It, right. it, it's very simple. So I, I don't think. And Letitia James, who's going to be running for governor, is not coming out and saying the words "stay tuned." Uh, this is going to happen. You know, we're in, a, we're in a news cycle that we get very hyped up and we kind of forget the things that are just hovering out there. Right. But I think particularly, they didn't, this was not to go after Alan Weisberg. Uh, Kyle Amari will be next, Trump's COO, who rose through the organization, has been there 25, 30 years. And as I said the last time I was on the show, the children and Donald himself. So it's coming. And um, I think coming sooner than later. In a September 2nd order recently unsealed, a judge ordered that the Trump Organization must comply with subpoenas issued by the New York Attorney General Letitia James's office or hire an outside firm to search through its documents and turn them over to prosecutors. According to Bloomberg, the company has until September 30th to report on its efforts to preserve, collect, and produce all documents responsive to subpoenas issued by James as part of a civil probe into whether the company manipulated the value of its assets for loans and for tax breaks. We learned that Weisselberg may not have been the only one to allegedly take those perks from the Trump Organization in order to avoid, in Weisselberg's case, prosecutors say almost $2 million in income taxes. His defense attorney said today, Lindsay, that he expected other people to be indicted. He didn't name names, and prosecutors certainly haven't said anything publicly. According to Bloomberg, it's not just Trump who should be concerned about the judge's orders, but his adult children as well. The government's search includes subpoenas issued to about two dozen people involved with the company, including Trump and three of his adult children, Don Jr., Eric Trump, and Ivanka Trump. Per the Daily Beast, others include Chief Operating Officer Matthew Calamari, Company's Controller Jeffrey McConney, Weisselberg, and Trump's personal assistant Rona Graff, 
whose correspondence could be extremely illuminating, given that Trump has been known to avoid email at all costs and likely relied on other people to share his thoughts in writing. Do you think, could you talk about the potential for prison time, do you think that this case ultimately will go to trial? You know, that's what they're planning for, and the judge today told the attorneys to mark it in their calendars for about a year from now. He said plan late August, early September for a trial. The way it looks right now, they didn't set a specific date. They'll do that later in July. But if that time frame holds late August, early September, that puts it right in the mix of the 2022 midterm elections, and there will be the Trump boldface name front and center once again. While the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan District Attorney are jointly prosecuting the criminal tax fraud case against the Trump Organization and Weisselberg, this civil probe is unrelated to and predates that effort. And, as the Daily Beast notes, the AG's office has a success record against Trump entities that should probably worry the ex-president. The AG's office had already completed a series of successful lawsuits against Trump and his companies. It played a key role in a nationwide class action lawsuit that exposed the false promises of his for-profit education scandal, Trump University. Next, the AG's office targeted the Trump Foundation and got a judge to dismantle the real estate mogul's charity by proving it had made glaring accounting errors and been misused to further his political campaign for the presidency. By 2019, the office of the top prosecutor in New York State had set its sights on the Trump Organization itself, exploring whether company officers had lied about real estate values in an effort to commit bank fraud. In a statement issued after the judge's order, James said, and I quote, For more than a year now, the Trump Organization has failed to adequately respond to our subpoenas, hiding behind procedural delays and excuses. Once again, the court has ordered that the Trump Organization must turn over the information and documents we are seeking, otherwise face an independent third party that will ensure that takes place. We've now received a statement from the Attorney General from New York State, Letitia James, describing as you've been discussing the sense that this is an important marker in her words, but also part of an ongoing investigation, saying that it will continue describing these allegations as referencing uh, a financial wrongdoing and a scheme again in her words, again underscoring the point that this is the beginning, not the end of the investigation that's now been partnered between the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the New York State Attorney General's Office. Remember, folks, it wasn't the big stuff that took down Al Capone. It was taxes. Even if some of the stuff feels a little penny-ante, it still adds up and the law is the law. James is likely running for Andrew Kiss Me Cuomo's vacated seat and will look at the prosecution of Trump and his family members like pelts on a wall. She wants all their heads and won't rest until she takes them down. Don't forget, though, Mark Pomerantz will continue to be the wolf at Trump's door and will go through every document, every email and text until he finds the smoking gun. These people never quit and they never sleep and they don't play golf or go to Florida. All they do is work this case. And when it comes down to it, it will be a ton of bricks. Tonight, there are more signs that the former president's legal jeopardy is real. Feeling a little better now about the state of things? Good, because I am too. The next time you find yourself up at night staring at the ceiling, worried that the world is coming to an end because Trump could be reelected, 
Just remember, they're up as well. Pomerantz and his crew of untouchables working the case. The wheels of justice may turn slowly, but nonetheless, they continue to turn. These guys aren't fucking around, and they don't lose cases. God bless America, and God bless the Rico statute. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa has had a front row seat to the machinations of Donald Trump for his entire career. A lifelong New Yorker, Errol Lewis has been offering incisive commentary on politics and policy in New York and beyond for decades. He is a political anchor and host of Inside City Hall on Spectrum News New York One, as well as a CNN contributor, an adjunct professor of the Urban Reporting Program at the City University of New York, and a visiting professor at NYU's Graduate School of Public Service. In recent days, Lewis joined New York Magazine as a columnist focusing on the mayoral race and new administration, as well as policy questions in the areas of criminal justice, transportation, and more. He joins me on mea culpa as President Biden attempts to thread the needle between moderates and progressives and passes ambitious infrastructure legislation. The specter of a GOP takeover of the House and Senate haunts him as well. We'll discuss this and more. So let's listen now to that conversation. All righty, so Errol. You recently retweeted an article from Mother Jones's Ari Berman, who we had on this show, talking about the corrosive effect of gerrymandering in states like Texas. In that, it makes voter suppression unnecessary. He writes in his most recent column, and I quote, The GOP-controlled Texas legislature has passed some of the country's most unpopular and divisive policies. A six-week ban on abortions enforced by citizen bounty hunters, a prohibition on teaching students about critical race theory, and the 1619 Project, as well as a sweeping voter suppression law targeting communities of color. Despite the national outcry, Texas Republicans seem unconcerned about a backlash in their home state. And here's why. They know they chose their own electorate rather than the electorate choosing them. How worried are you that Texas model is going to be replicated nationwide and we are headed towards a completely autocratic future? I am, I am worried. I am worried. Everyone should be worried. Um, because, you know, even if you agree with those Texas policies, everybody should, I think, be concerned, Michael, that uh, if, a po- if a policy is unpopular, it's not supposed to prevail. If a legislator puts in place a law that we know uh, in the case of Texas, I know with the abortion law, something like uh, 60 to 70 percent of, of the electorate doesn't like that idea of, you know, no exceptions for rape or incest you know, six weeks, this bounty hunter uh, kind of structure that they have. It's not popular as a policy. And yet there it is. And people are forced to live with it. If you start to expand that, the what ifs can really take you into some scary places. What if people start uh, imposing taxes that 70 percent of the the population doesn't want? What if they start um, making other incursions into private life that people don't like? Everybody should be concerned about it. And the reality is, is this is con- this is uh, sort of a byproduct of the information age. In the old days, 
you could sit in a back room, you know, a smoky back room of legend and uh, draw with a map and you'd kind of know where you could put the lines in order to favor this or that uh, political outcome. Now with computers, you can do it literally block by block. I mean, I've seen some of these outcomes here in New York City and it's it's, it's kind of spooky. You get these weird districts where they're literally just crawling through a neighborhood, picking up every particular vote that they think is going to be favorable to them. And then at the end of it, they say, here's the district. So, you know, if, if we want to ever close the gap between what our, our representatives do and what it is we want them to do, we can't you, you just can't have this. I mean, you, you have a, a baked in mismatch between what it is people want and what it is people are going to get. And it'll take them 10 years to fix it. That's the other problem with gerrymandering is once it's done, it's very hard to undo. Uh, you you got to wait for the next census. You've got to do another reapportionment. Uh, along the way, you've got to have a, a series of educational campaigns to tell people why, why this is not okay. It's a huge burden. And I, I mean, Ari Berman, I, I've interviewed him a lot. He's right to call our attention to this because this this is how you you give democracy away. Basically, you know, if, if we're if we if we keep napping, we we've give we'll give the whole thing away and to, to surrender the world's greatest democracy without without a fight, without a proper fight would be tragic. OK, so we talk a lot here on Maya Culpa about gerrymandering. I mean, I can tell you the silk stocking district here, right, which is yeah. where I live, is so strange in how it looks it's like a pinpoint that slowly gets larger then it bubbles up into some massive you know apportioned area then it thins out it hooks to the left it then hooks to the right i mean it is the craziest looking thing i've ever seen and you're right a lot of this has to do with technology they know Every single voter who votes, everything now is tracked by computer. So before, they would have to go and they would have to do it by hand. And then if somebody moved, you probably wouldn't find out. So it basically became guesswork. Now, it's to the, it's literally to the apartment. They know who's voting for what. They know who's who. They know whether or not a person will vote if it's raining outside or if it's snowing outside, they have this based upon statistics and algorithms. And under such a circumstance, you're going to have people like Governor Abbott, like so many other of these states that the gerrymandering is playing a very critical role in keeping people who probably should not be elected officials, keeping them remaining as elected officials. That's right. That's right. No, so, some, somebody's got to, to do. Um, well, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's everybody's problem. Right. And uh, it's everybody's concern. And you're doing a public service by by keeping the focus on it. I mean, I know that district, the 12th congressional district where you are, um, you know, it, it used to be a Republican district once upon a time. This was John Lindsay's old district. It's, it's a lot more uh, pr- progressive slash liberal now, but it's gotten to the point where even your progressive congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney, is saying, well, this is this may have gone a little too far. You know, she's got uh, across the river from her. There's an area of Queens that's in her district where there's basically a political insurrection going on. There's all these socialists who are getting elected. Uh, you know, it's, it's as far as I can tell, it's like a, a bunch of new apartment buildings that went up, a whole forest of them, actually, thousands and thousands of people. And they're renting. Uh, They're rented by young people who are left leaning, who haven't started families, who have a take on life that, frankly, is considerably more to the left than my own. Uh, And they 
they are they are pressing her. They are pressing her and she doesn't want them. So, you know, we've already been speculating that when the next when the, when the lines get redrawn, there's going to be a little bit of gerrymandering right here in New York City. And I suspect, Michael, you're going to end up in a district that has a lot fewer of those Queens radicals uh, uh, in the district if it doesn't cut them out altogether. Yeah. You know, look, uh, I am trying as hard as I can to keep some of these um, issues out in the mainstream because Captain Chaos, despite the fact that he's now out of office for about eight months already, right? Um, Actually, what am I talking about? It's uh, nine months. He's still dominating the news cycle and he's dominating it with on Monday, it could be about January 6th insurrection. On Tuesday, it could be about immigration. On Wednesday, it could be about the big lie. On Thursday, it could be about firing Corey Lewandowski from the group and so on and so forth. It doesn't stop with him. And every day, it's multiple chaotic episodes. On top of that, of course, I have another 52 days of home confinement, so I really don't have anything else to do other, <laughs> right? other, than, other than do this. But you know, another thing that we talk a lot here on mea culpa and there are people that will stop me in central park as i'm walking or down madison and say i agree with virtually everything that you're saying but i don't understand why you constantly talk about critical race theory and why critical race theory you think is so important in terms of as a country growing so that we stop this Trump divisiveness and we come back to being the Americans that we all were. And remember, on September 11th, it didn't matter if you were a Republican, a Democrat or an independent when those buildings went down or when the police officers were helping people to get out or people walking in the street, as I was at the time, you know, helping others walking in the street. I didn't say, hey, are you a Republican? Oh, no, I can't help you. I'm not going to give you a bottle of water. I mean, that's what we need to return back to. We can't tell you what to dress up for Halloween, but we can tell you that you can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes at Policy Genius. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. To properly provide for their families, most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage that they get through their employer. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. So why compare? Because you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance just by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies, so you could trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. And eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor, higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, and Besto. Getting started is easy. First, head to PolicyGenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. 
When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add on any extra fees. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Now, Governor Abbott, as an example, signed this con- uh, this very controversial bill that you know prescribes how Texas um, Texas teachers can talk about you know current events and America's history of racism in the classroom. Now, I didn't know that the governor was also the principal of the school or that he was the head of the you know uh, of the teachers union. I mean, I don't understand how this guy comes in and says that this portion of American history is not relevant. I don't understand it. And I keep saying on this show, and I ask people like yourself who are kind enough to come on as guests, what's your take on this? Because we already see what's happening with statues. We already see what's going on around the country where, you know, this is this issue is not going to go away. And I think that it's extremely important. I don't think that it hurts the student body, whether you're kindergarten through 12th grade or, you know, college or post-grad, to understand how America became America. Oh, no. I mean, look, you, 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 you hurt my heart by, by talking about these things in a way because it's, it's so distressing to me. Honestly, Michael, I mean, the, 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 first of all, critical race theory itself, um, when, when I was in college, they were developing a lot of this stuff um, on, um, in, in the law school. It comes, out of, it comes out of, you know, it comes out of like Harvard Law School, a, a handful of thinkers. And it was, it, it was a theory. It was a, an approach. It was a method. It was something analogous to, you know, the way uh, the followers of, of uh, former Justice Scalia like to go back to like a 17th century text to see what they can come up with. It's not an, an inflexible method, but it's a way of trying to tease out what the Constitution might mean, what the framers might have in mind. Critical race theory was something similar to that in the in the sense that it was a way of approaching legal problems, legal structures, legal philosophy and reasoning, as well as the institutions that we built up, the courts and so forth, uh, with an eye toward like, like, look, let's remember there were slaveholders who wrote these laws. There were slaveholders who built these institutions. There could be some bias embedded in these systems, and we should be attentive to it. And of course, you can't even begin to do that unless you know some of the history. That's really all it was. It wasn't like trying to you know, write textbooks to put in a fifth grader's you know, cubby or anything like that. Uh, and and it, the, the phrase got hijacked, much the way the phrase fake news got hijacked. And people took it and ran with it. And, and built it into a Frankenstein or a straw man or whatever you want to call it, a, a, a boogeyman, uh, and, and then began to campaign against the boogeyman. And of course, there's never an answer to like a Governor Abbott. Who's going to take the other side of that argument? No, you know, he, he's arguing about something that doesn't even exist. There is no group of people out there, you know, secretly trying to impose some kind of, you know, anti-white racist dogma in textbooks and sell it to school districts around the country. That simply doesn't exist, <laughs> you know. So, so there's no there's nobody to argue back, and they he, they get people wound up and riled up and furious and angry and like I said, it hurts my heart because you see these videos of people standing up in uh, you know school districts around the country screaming and raging. You can't have you're not going to tell my kid that he's you know on and on and on and and I don't even know who they're yelling at. 
you know, I said, I think they're maybe they're mad at me or something, but like, no, nobody's trying to, nobody's trying to pollute the minds of their kids. And they're convinced that there is some evil force out there. And I guess in the end, Michael, I would, I would say it's a, a manifestation of something that you see in a lot of different ways, which is America is becoming more and more diverse. There are things that are happening now that even, even 40 years ago were unheard of. Like if you ever look at the numbers of interracial marriages in this country, it was almost unheard of when I was in high school. I mean, it was like, you know, like 3%, 4%, something. I mean, like really almost like, you know, minuscule. Now it's, it's, a, it's a very different kind of a world. We've had a lot more immigration. We've had a lot more integration. We've had a lot of attitudes that have changed. You now have same-sex marriage blessed by the Supreme Court. A lot of stuff is different. And there are some people who are not comfortable with or are, are uh, sort of, um, I guess, bowled over by the pace of the change. And then there are always these evil people. I don't want to say evil, but there are always these. No, you should say evil these, because they yeah, well, are they're, evil. There are people there to take advantage of, of people's justifiable you know, uh, prejudices. You know? Yeah. yeah, it's their yeah, prejudices, I mean, and nobody did it better than the former guy, right? Than this narcissistic sociopath true. Trump. And you know, for in 2020, as an example, you know, Donald banned federal employees from training that discusses critical race theory and white yeah. privilege using a term that we all know too well going back to 1935, right, to World War II, the Third Reich, propaganda, right? And that's what Donald Trump's strength is all about. It's creating propaganda. Now, you did bring up, for example, and I hate to do this to you, but, you know, you talk mm. about fake news. The problem with the concept of fake news is that Donald is so good at doing this. If you make a report, you're reporting on a topic, and that topic turns out not to be accurate. Not that it's not accurate because I say it's not accurate. It's not accurate because it's just not accurate. Right. And right. it gets proven to be inaccurate. Every single time that you now go on television, any time that you criticize him, despite the fact that what you're criticizing him about is accurate— he calls you fake news, and he points back to that mistake that was made. And even, Errol, if it's not you, even if it's not anything that you said when you're you know, on any of these various different programs or writing, the fact that somebody else did on a topic, he will use that in order to create, again, the notion that everything is fake news, unless he agrees with it. And that's so dangerous. It's a, now, what's dangerous is the fact that the media gets shit wrong, and they get shit wrong all the fucking time. And to those people like myself that got smashed as a result of it, right, you know, it is fake news. The Steele dossier was fake news. The reports of me being in Prague on my cell phone, pinging off a tower in Czechoslovakia, it's all inaccurate. It's fake news. The fact that I went after Stormy Daniels in a parking garage, as told by Michael Avenatti, who very soon will understand what it feels like to be incarcerated again, it's fake news. And Trump then uses that, despite the fact that he clearly hates me now, he will still use what happened to me 
to promote this concept of fake news. And the, the notion that you could do that, attack the media, attack First Amendment rights, that's one of two parts in terms of becoming an authoritarian. First, you take away people's freedom of speech, right, and how they think. And the second is that you take away their freedom. And how do you do that? With these militias, right? You take control right. of the military, which is exactly what January 6th was. So anyone that thinks that Donald was not looking to become the Kim Jong-un or the Vladimir Putin of America, it's really time for them to open their eyes. Well, but here's 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 the, the 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 part that is so you know fiendishly difficult to get around is that I can't do my business. I've been a journalist since I'm 19 years old. You can't do your business. We cannot do our business. We cannot have real freedom of speech or accurate journalism without getting stuff wrong, right? I mean, you know, I mean, because even like even the Steele dossier. I'm glad you brought that up. The Steele dossier, if it was reported where and when it was reported properly, people would put in all of the caveats. This is a document. This is the guy who prepared it. This is what he said he knew and what he said he didn't know. This is what the intelligence services did with it. This is what Senator McCain said about it. You know, I mean, just tell us what it is. It, it depends on an audience that is willing to be at least patient and thoughtful enough to put up with or to understand the ambiguity that you are reporting. That you, you know, because I can't do my job any other way. I can't just say, well, People will misinterpret this and I'll be called fake news. So I'll either I, I either won't report it or I'll just dive in and say it's all garbage or it's all true. Well, nothing is all garbage or all true. Everything is in between. We we deal in shades of gray. And if we could only talk to each other like adults, which is, you know, like sort of my main mission in life. I literally think of that as like what they pay me to do is I, I try to like and, and I say it up front to people try to be transparent. Let's have an adult conversation about this. We know nobody's all evil or, and nobody's all good. We know that people get stuff wrong, in which case how they react when you point it out is really important. If you say, well, look, if I got this wrong, I will fix it. I will acknowledge it. I will not run away from it. You know, and I mean, I do I do we you know I do that all the time. We do that all the time. You, you get the number wrong. You say, OK, I have the number wrong. Here's the real number. Do your corrections. You do your retractions. You hopefully you're not doing it all the time because you're trying to get it get it right the first time. But um, we, we end up in a really sticky place if people get to be afraid to put out there what they know because they know it's going to be warped uh, by unscrupulous politicians. Um, and so it puts us in a really really tough spot. But I have I just fall back on you know. What they taught me in church, what my parents taught me, what what I happen to believe now in part as a result of that, which is that all you can do is your best and uh, try and tell the best truth that you know and that you can get your hands on. And if people want to abuse that or um, criticize you for it or distort it, you gotta, that's on them. Yes, it's on them. But you're referring to people who are... Joe and Jane average, right? The people that watch you on television who don't have a microphone as big as the former president, right? What happens when you have the leader of the free world, the most powerful man on the planet, attacking you, meaning journalists, every fucking second of every fucking day of every goddamn you know month throughout his entire presidency, all to turn around and to denigrate 
the First Amendment, free speech, and the press so that he could control it. That's a serious problem. But I, I want to just move forward for a second, kind of on the same topic. But in recent weeks, we've seen a more aggressive posture by the January 6th committee to hold those most responsible for the insurrection accountable. Now, the handling, you know, the handing down of these subpoenas to Trump's inner circle shows that they finally mean business. At least that's what they're trying to project. What do you believe the outcome will be of this latest move? Are you hopeful that we may see some possible indictments for insurrectionists and other crimes by Trump and his inner circle? I, I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I don't know. I should say I, I don't know that that's where it leads to. You know, I mean, some some of the I remember there was some talk. I didn't research this extensively, but, you know, as an attorney, the the um, the standards of proof are rather high. Uh, on on some of these, right? To try and to try and make out a conspiracy, you know, first you have to find the crime, then you have to try and allege a conspiracy, and then you have to find the overt acts that would tie people to the conspiracy. I think that gets into into a place where more people will walk away than should. I want people. I, I what I'm hoping for is a, first of all a clean record about who was doing what while all of this chaos was unfolding. Who knew? about the likelihood that there was going to be violence. Who knew that uh, the, the, the crowd that was sent down there, the mob really, uh, was, was going to try and actually hurt people and storm the Capitol and so forth? And what did people do to uh, stop the response? You know, so I, I want a TikTok. I want hour by hour, minute by minute, if possible, what the heck was going on inside the White House and with the, the president's senior aides uh, while all of this was unfolding, what did they know? When did they know it? What did they do as a result? Just as a record, just as a as a record. Uh, are there people who are are clearly guilty? I don't know, honestly. I mean, I, I you know I interviewed um I interviewed Rudy Giuliani a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him about it. You know, I mean, it's kind of like what you know what did, what did you think was going to happen? You know, that kind of a thing. And there are a lot of people who are very very clever, and they're going to be able to walk away from this. And I, I don't think that diminishes the value of putting them under oath and getting them on the record. You know, I, we, at this point, Michael, things have been so distorted and members of Congress are often fantasy land saying that, well, there's just a group of tourists and they got out a little out of hand or something like that. Uh, you know, if, if we have to we have to nail down the facts first, because that that is going back to your other theme. That's the way you fight back against demagogues who are going to try and spin a story and distort uh, the truth. First, you've got to have a clean record. Putting people under oath, as you know, makes them a little bit more truthful, even if even if even if they're not honest people, uh, at least it, it, it creates some consequences and you're likely to get a little bit better of a picture. But that's all. That's all. I don't I don't I don't feel like anybody needs to go to prison. I feel like. This was a political crime more than anything else. Uh, I think that the I don't even remember the last number, but, the you know, the hundred plus people who are being held accountable in various jurisdictions around the country for their actions, that that's a good thing. Um, the man who inspired it was voted out of office uh, and, and uh, was uh, kicked off of his social media platforms. So the former guy, you know, I mean. There's just there's just no getting around it. There's stuff you can fix with the courts, and then there's stuff you have to fix through politics. And in the end, you know where all of this is heading. All of this is heading to 2024.
you know, and we need a clean record so that whatever happens in the next presidential election, if the former guy is trying to make a comeback, people will have a clear understanding of what happened with this, or at least a record that's reliable and official to, to, to stack up against the fantasy world that, that some, some of the politicians are trying to create now. But that's the whole purpose of this commission, other than, of course, you know, various different politicians getting their additional 15 minutes of having the MSNBC, CNNs and people like yourself standing outside their door. They love that shit. But that's but I mean, what is it? What does it all lead to if, in fact, that there's not going to be responsibility held? Right. The record is worthless. I don't care. 2024 people already know who and what Donald Trump is. And I say it all the time. He's a racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semite. That's just who he is. You want to vote for him? Then there's got to be something wrong with you. But 74 million people did. Now, did they vote for him because they held their nose and didn't want Joe Biden? I don't know. But what bothers me the most is I was watching Adam Schiff the other day. Now, I was before Adam Schiff, you know, three or four times. And uh, he asks pretty pertinent questions and so on. But the ultimate goal is to get these four people, the Steve Bannons, the Cash Patels, the Dan Scavinos, you know, uh, the Steve Bannons in front of the committee. I don't believe that they're going to show up because what Trump has taught us, if nothing else, is that you get a subpoena, you throw in the fucking garbage because there's nothing that they're going to do. And now all of a sudden, Adam Schiff starts flexing his chest and so on. It's like, you know, if in fact these people don't show up we on the table, we have criminal contempt, you know, and some bullshit. I call bullshit right here today on Maya Culpa talking to Errol Lewis. I call bullshit. There's going to be no criminal contempt. I'd like to see them jail Steve Bannon or Scavino or Patel, especially Mark Meadows, for failing to show up. You know, that's what Trump did. He basically turned around and showed the country. He showed the next Donald Trump who will run, because Trump's not going to run in 2024. It'll be the Donald Mm -hmm. Trump 2.0, that the sicker, the crazier, the more bombastic, the bigger the asshole that you are, the more people will follow you. That's what he's done to this country. And how do we ever go back? Well, well, I mean, one one way we go back is I, I, I keep an eye on stuff in Florida. My family's from Florida. My wife's from Florida. I go down there all the time. Uh, I've been keeping an eye on on DeSantis because he seems to be trying to be Trump 2.0. And I don't think it's going very well. You know, I mean, th- your your former boss might be a, a, a kind of a one off, uh, a one of a kind. You know, not every, every not everybody can do what he was able to do. He, you know, he could lie with impunity um, or, or, you know, the, the level of shamelessness, even for a politician was really just off the charts I mean, in a way that I have never seen before. Um, the willingness to actually tamper with democracy itself, to undermine institutions, uh, to, 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 to introduce this kind of, these kind of radical strategies uh, into the political process. Not everybody, not everybody is, is, is able to do that. They can't communicate like him. They can't um, persuade like he can. They can't um, fool people like he can. And I don't think that they can win like he can. I just, I just, I just don't see it. Except now see you it, see, I mean. but now you see in the Republican Party, they constantly refer to their rising stars. I agree with you. 
DeSantis has no shot, right, in terms of in the national election. But the Republican Party, they keep talking about their rising stars, right? You have Josh Hawley. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? The fact that Josh Hawley had the fucking balls to sit there and to behave the way he did to in front of General Milley, a man who has given his life to the service of this country, to upholding our constitution, fighting for democracy. This fucking piece of shit gets up there and he starts attacking him. And so the shame on the whole group of them, Republicans and Democrats, even allowing him to remain on that committee. That's the problem. That's the part that I'm trying to explain. What Trump has done is he has changed the way we see and the way that we behave. Yes. Well, I mean, what, what I see happening or and the dynamic that, that I would like to hear more about, you probably have more insight into it, is there are people, and Josh Hawley's not one of them. He's, he's, he's an opportunist. You know, we, we know, we know him. You can see it from a mile away, right? Uh, but th- there are others who just stay silent, right? They say nothing. Uh, they vote with the mob. They try to avoid antagonizing the mob. You know, what we have is a radicalized base of people who are putting pressure, you know, whether it's about vaccinations or January 6th or anything else, putting a level of pressure on some of these mainstream politicians who, you know, it's, it's fine to be a conservative, but it's not OK to be a radical and to attack or allow the attacking and the undermining of our institutions. And too many people are doing that, I think, because they're simply afraid. They're simply afraid. I mean, like, you know, and they have reason to be. People say, we know where you live. We're going to come to your house. We're going to stop you in the airport. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You you know, your name starts popping up on websites with the Oath Keepers and stuff like that. You know, you hear about what they were planning to do to the governor of Michigan, you know, and and politicians are people. And and I think a lot of them are just like they're, they're losing their backbone. They're losing their nerve. Some have quit the party. Some have quit politics. Others are just trying to sort of hope for the fever to break. But we're several years into this now, and the fever so shows no sign of breaking. If anything, it seems to be you know getting a little bit hotter. Um, so the, the the question is, how do we help snap them out of it? How do we help walk or talk them out of it? And I I don't I do not know. I do not know. I mean, I, I think the the mob itself is a lost cause. At least for me, they're not going to listen to me under any circumstances. But 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 the people that they are scaring and influencing and intimidating. Those people we have to talk to and say, listen, you know, you can't, you know, I mean, this is your moment. You know, we all we, we all grew up reading Profiles and Courage and other things like that. Like whatever you wanted else you wanted to do with your life, you had to know at some point this question might be called. You know, like, you know, the, the, the question is democracy is on the line. You swore an oath. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to pretend it didn't happen and you're going to violate your oath? You're going to just hide and stay quiet or are you going to stand up? No, Errol, they're going I, to I, they're going to fundraise off of it. And they go, that's what they, yeah. they're going to keep them out shuts and fundraise off of it. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. We've got an amazing sponsor for this episode. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, make sure to check out last Thursday's episode with artificial intelligence expert Kai-Fu Lee on his vision for our future with AI. You won't want to miss this fascinating look into the future of mankind. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. 
And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Like, check out September 7th interview with former FBI Special Agent Jack Schaefer on influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Take these tips and apply them directly to your own life. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But on the same notion then, the Washington Post recently published an op-ed that if Georgia doesn't pursue Trump for election tampering, then the Justice Department must. Now, if there is no accountability for what these people are doing to our elections, there will be no deterrent from it happening over and over and over again. What do you think is stopping Merrick Garland from pursuing Trump over his election antics? In fact, What's stopping Merrick Garland from pursuing Trump on more than a dozen, more than a dozen different actions that he has done that are mm. all illegal? Right. Well, I mean, well, look, first of all, you, you know, from working with a guy, um, you know, if you, if you go sentence by sentence and phone call by phone call, it's a little bit slippery. It's a little bit ambiguous. It's not a clear cut case where you could just, you know, sort of uh, run a regular prosecution and have a jury reach the conclusion that that is obvious to the rest of us. So that that is so it's tricky. You know, you can't do it lightly. The, the second problem, though, is that I'm not sure about where the federal jurisdiction, you know, can prevail, you know, and then, the, you know, and then the related problem, which is the real problem, which is that the state legislatures have passed laws or implemented procedures that cut some of these secretaries of state out of the loop that give the power to themselves, not just uh, to the legislature, but to the majority caucus of that legislature uh, to, to overturn the results of the election anyway. You know, so they've leapfrogged ahead of the, the question of prosecution. And they're saying when the next election comes, we don't care what happens. We don't care how the people vote. Uh, we are going to determine who gets the electoral votes. Now, at that point, we will be very far gone. Uh, we might even be past the point where litigation would be relevant. Uh, because I think they are they are distorting and radically changing how it is uh, votes are counted in federal elections. It's it's really disturbing. Now, can Merrick Garland stop that with a, a prosecution uh, of the of the former president? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I wish he'd go after some of those state legislators, maybe shake them up a little bit, you know, uh, uh, you know, ask them what the hell they were doing and 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 why. Uh, what phone calls they got, you know, and, and um, maybe uh, give them a little bit to think about if they want to decide to start tampering with federal elections in the future. But that's saber rattling. That's not um, that's not that's not a guaranteed solution. 
for people who are determined to steal elections. No, it's not. Now, you brought up Rudy Colludi a few moments ago. So let's talk about Rudy for a moment, right? You know, one of my favorite topics. What are you hearing from your sources about what's going on with him as the walls close in around him from a legal perspective? Because, you know, there are tons of rumors of alcoholism and several drunken appearances. Then there was that picture of him shaving in the airline lounge above his soup. Look, it's, it's sad, to be honest with you. Just this incredible fall from grace for one of the, you know, most well-known um, and at one time considered America's mayor. I'm curious if you can first tell my listeners what's going on with him legally. And then broader, how does this even happen? How does a man who had the world in the palm of his hands after 9-11 so spectacularly implode and destroy themselves? I, I, I know more about the second than the first, but I'll tell you, um, legally, my, my understanding is that um, he's in a much more serious situation when it comes to what he was doing in Europe when he was trying to uh, scare up dirt on Joe Biden. Um, that he might uh, be in some real legal hot water over. And there are federal investigations going on. I do not know the status of them or if it's going to amount to anything. A lot of times, you know, these cases go away just because of what they call mootness. Right. Meaning, hey, does it really matter? If, the, if, if, if uh, you know, the, 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 it didn't distort the election, meaning people voted the guy out anyway. Uh, Rudy's not doing this stuff anymore. Uh, nobody, there doesn't seem to be an active uh, complaining uh, witness. And so, you know, maybe they'll let it go. As, as far as why, and this is what I asked Rudy himself directly. You know, what I focused on was, he, you know, he's doing Cameo. You know, I think you're on Cameo too, right? You, I am. You, you record, I am. In fact, in fact, in fact, I've done over 1500 cameos, which is great because it helps. Again, it keeps me busy. I have to figure out how to fill 21 hours per day (laughs) each and every day. (laughs) Well, well, it's it's he's he's doing it for like 300 bucks a pop, you know, and I asked him, I was like, come on, man, you're the mayor. You know what I mean? Like you used to be the mayor of New York City. What do you what do you you know, you're like. Wishing people happy birthday for 300 bucks a shot. What are you doing? You know, and um, he said he's 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 got a podcast. He's looking for a TV show. It's legal. And, you know, he's and he's being very successful. He says he's doing a lot of them and he seems to be making some money. So I would I would attribute this to something I have seen before, which is guys around his age just wanting to be relevant. I think Lindsey Graham has a, a version of the same the same uh, syndrome. They just want to be relevant. They want to be on the stage. It doesn't even matter if they're like the villain or the fool or the knave. They just want to be. They just want to be in the mix. He, Rudy Giuliani called a press conference to criticize Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. He has no expertise. He has no relevance to it. But did everybody show up with the camera? We sure did. Uh, and, you know, and that's what he wanted. He wanted his fix. He wanted to be in the he wanted to be in the mix. And it's it's unfortunate, you know, because he could he could run a legitimate business. I you know, he could just practice law. He 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 ruined his reputation to a great extent and and could end up still in some real legal trouble that would be, you know, would 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 make whatever pleasure or 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 thrill he got out of it pale in comparison. So, you know, you sort of hope on a human level he doesn't do that. Um, he, he contributed to that insurrection. Wait, 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 wait. By- then, then I'm not human. 
because I wish I wish nothing good for the man. I'm sorry. I know it's not it's it's not what the the Torah teaches. It's not what you know. It's not what my parents would like me to say. Yes. I want to see him fall flat on his fucking face. Right. But he has. Uh, but he and, has. No. 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 But he's managed to get up. Did you when, see that movie? When, when he's in that hotel room with the girl? Oh, my God. You're talking Sasha Baron Cohen's. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd have died of shame. Oh, my God. But he <laughs> has no shame. That's the problem. Yeah, and and yes, I see it very different. Yes. I see the fact that Rudy is doing this. Not so. It's not centered around the fact that he, like Trump, wants to see his name in the paper or see himself on television. It's all about finances. You know, when you go through three divorces, it wipes you out financially. You know, maybe he should not get remarried or, you know, um, maybe stay with the woman that you marry. You take the you take that pledge, stick with it. But finances is a big problem for him. And that's why all of these shady dealings with foreign countries were going on with Rudy. And whether he gets his law license back or not, listen, I lost my law license because I gave $130,000 to a porn star who pulled the president's pecker, to which he still refuses to acknowledge that that happened, despite the fact the whole world knows that it happened, not just with him, but with Karen McDougal, who I didn't pay a penny to, despite the fact I was forced to plead guilty to it. Um, that was done by AMI, David Pecker, and others. But this is all about Rudy's finances. And it's also about the power. So he tagged along. Donald and Rudy never had a friendship. And when I listen to all of these talking heads on television saying, oh, you know, his longtime friend and ally, Rudy Joe. Trump fucking hated Rudy. He used to make fun of Rudy on a regular basis. They never went for dinner. Listen, you have friends that are your friends. You have friends that are social friends, right? Then you have friends who are just your best friends in the whole world. Rudy was none of those to Trump. It was a transactional relationship. Donald wanted free legal work. Despite the fact Rudy thought he was going to get paid like $100,000 a day from the RNC because they were raising crazy amounts of money. And it goes back to the finance issue. But on top of that, Donald needed free legal work. And Rudy wanted the power or the appearance so that he can go to these foreign countries and make deals with them, like whether it's Turkey or whoever he was making deals with, um, for his lobbying practice. Now that he's disgraced, now that everybody knows he's a fucking drunk, that he's insane with the shit sweating down into his mouth <laughs> while he's talking at Four Seasons Landscaping, and, right, I mean, right, shaving with the hair falling into his soup, what, what world leader would be stupid enough to pay him even a dollar for his service when he has absolutely no clout and, in all fairness, as you said, in a nicer way than I will. He's the laughing stock of the world. Mm, mm. No, no, I mean, it, look, you, 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 raise, you raise good points, Michael. Uh, oh, I, I think, thank um, you. He, he's, um, the, the, the need for money, I, I totally buy into because nobody, nobody would be doing what he's doing, where he's like, you know, he's got like some, some radio show and he says he's going to try and get a TV deal and all of this stuff. And it's, 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 you know, it's 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 quite a difference from what he was doing just a year ago, you know, and and uh, there's a certain desperation to it. There's a certain franticness to it that, uh, that that you can't otherwise explain. But 
you know, he he is for those of us who were here when he was the mayor. This is all just like shocking. You know, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I always thought that um, what he did in the days after 9-11 and, and how he performed on 9-11 um, was because he had an appetite for chaos inside of his head so that when the world finally did like blow up in front of all of us, he was perfectly at home because the world was finally um, in sync with whatever was going on in his brain. You know, I mean, he, he he's had this lifelong fascination with the grand gesture. You know, he's a, a huge, deep, devoted opera fan. And I think he always saw himself as a guy who was on the stage in the middle of a big chaotic storm. And once that was over, you know, basically after 9-11 faded, he's been looking for chaos in the big stage ever since. And, and he managed to find it. Yeah, and I believe that he's going to end up either on Celebrity Rehab or Dancing with the Stars. That's, that's my prediction, <laughs> right? That's about the closest he's going to get again to television, unless he calls another stupid uh, you know, uh, announcement that he wants to make about something he knows nothing about. So moving, just moving forward for a sec. Yes. So despite these subpoenas and the possibility that Trump could face prosecution for his attempts to overturn the vote in Georgia, even though we have a little bit of a difference of opinion of it, Trumpism, which is the problem, remains on the march. Are we poised to inherit a future where these authoritarian actions are part and parcel of government from a GOP unleashed from our basic norms, basically willing to do anything to maintain power with or without Trump? Because we are seeing more and more politicians walking away from him. And basically, even if Trump should wind up in prison, God willing, or erased from public life, God willing, are the darker forces that he unleashed with us here to stay? If you would discuss this with me and my listeners. Yeah, I would, I would, I would, I would say yes, maybe. Yes, maybe. Maybe Trumpism is, uh, uh, you know, look, I, I think of Trumpism as uh, the latest or a modern reincarnation of something that's always been there. You know, you read about Huey Long, uh, you know, you read about the, the the John Birch Society, there, there's always been this kind of radical streak of authoritarian possibility in the American character and in American politics. Uh, the, the trick has been to try and dial it back. You know, I mean, we probably all kidded ourselves a little bit after Watergate into thinking that some of the institutional changes and the election of the Watergate babies and the Democratic majority that held the House for 40 years, that that, that this was going to last forever that this was going to be a permanent change. And it turns out, no, nothing is permanent. You know, Newt Gingrich comes along, uh, the Reagan revolution comes along, uh, the radicals, uh, the, the right-wing radicals uh, start to uh, plant seeds and they, they sort of grow up. And so, look, I, you, you know, let, let's treat it the way we would if it was happening overseas. We would say, who are the radical clerics who, uh, you know, who are the clerics who radicalized the youth? Let's, let's go and try and reintroduce a more moderate kind of a conversation about how the world works and what life is all about. And, you know, it may take a generation, but we have to slowly bring people back to their senses. And then at the, in, in the meantime, we have to do everything we possibly can to protect our institutions so that the radicals don't destroy or, 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 or contaminate them. And I think that's where we are. Now, one of the surest ways to do it when it comes to the political class, because these are the kind of people I do understand, 
they have to be voted out of office. They have to have one defeat after another. And then even the densest politician, even the future Marjorie Taylor Greene will say, oh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to, you know, acting, acting crazy, you know, at the, in, in a church basement when I'm on the campaign trail is going to get me laughed at, laughed at and bounced out. That's where we have to get. Now, that's a long project. That's a generation long project. But, you know, if you, you have kids, I have a son. They don't know anything about what happened before they were born. They don't know anything about it. And so, you know, I, I've told my son, he's 16. I've told him, I said, like, listen, remember what you're seeing here. Because when you explain to your kids that we had a game show host as president who, who you know, who, who, who incited an insurrection, lied every single day, uh, helped the pandemic spread, and in every way possible, almost destroyed this country, nobody's going to believe you. Your kids won't even believe that this happened. You know, and I I think we are going to get to that point where people are going to say, man, who was that guy? We had a guy who had never served in any government office in his whole life, who was known to be a a prevaricator and a fornicator, and we made him the president of the United States. You know, I mean, People wouldn't believe it. So I, I think we just have to hold on, Michael, honestly. I mean, we've got to, you know, we've all got to continue to do our jobs. We've got to safeguard our institutions, especially the ones that are, you know, the the, the voting institutions, the democracy itself. Uh, we've got to talk to our kids. We've got to make sure that it is culturally unacceptable to be a public liar. You know, that you will just be, you will be shunned. You will be laughed at. You will be voted out. You will not be given power. If you have power, it will be taken from you. I think we can get there. I do think we can get there. I mean, I, you know, a, a, any way you look at it, if, every which way you poll it, most people will say they want their public and elected leaders to be truthful, to be somewhat truthful. You know? Well, they, <laughs> I, mean, they, I see they, that. They, I see that as the distinction between, you know, hopeful and optimistic. Ever receive a call, text, or email from someone posing as an IRS agent, a police officer, or the power company demanding payment by gift card? Well, if you have, and I have, you're probably being targeted for a gift card scam. These fraudsters trick victims into sending online gift cards or reading the numbers from a gift card over the phone. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. We do a lot more online these days. Unfortunately, cybercriminals are always looking for ways to take your information. Norton 360 with LifeLock provides all-in-one protection in the digital world with device security that helps block cybercriminals from stealing your personal information that's stored on your devices. A VPN to help keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. And LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock as I do, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com Cohen. But, you know, Errol, mm. you bring something up that makes me want to ask you something uh, pretty significant. And it's about you, because, Errol, you've been a fixture in both New York politics and media for a long time. 
and you've interviewed Trump numerous times, and you personally have witnessed his metamorphosis into what he is today, everything that I described before. How do you cover a figure like Trump as a media person who seems almost immune to scandal and basic fact-checking as he seems poised to run again now in 2024, despite the fact I don't think he will, but he seems Mm. poised to run in 2024. How do you cover somebody like that who you'll say to him, why don't you start by stating your name? And he'll say, I'm Errol Lewis. You're like, no, I'm Errol Lewis. (laughs) The guy lies about everything. Right. Right. Well, I mean, look, I, I have a way of doing it that's different from others. Um, but, you know, my 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 way of dealing with public figures, whether mostly political, because I do political journalism, if somebody tells a lie, you know, you, you, you ask them once, you ask them twice, and then you metaphorically or in some cases literally turn to the camera and say, this man is lying. Let's move on to the next topic. You know, I mean, I, I said that on CNN, I don't know how many times I did a lot of commentary. You know, I, I actually happened to be sitting in the CNN studio doing commentary when he came down the escalator, uh, which makes it a, 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 an unforgettable moment for me, because I thought he was going to come down and bullshit the public and say, well, you know, we're going to make an announcement in another week. And I think you'll be surprised by it. And then he came down and announced the president. And I was like, holy crap. Uh, you know, and it's, it's been a, a, a roller coaster since then. What, what I would do is just what I described to you. Like, you cannot you cannot play into this stuff. Once you start accepting some of the uh, the, the the mistruths, and he's, he really is unique with this. Not everybody can pull this off, but he starts saying things that are untrue, and either you have to challenge it really, really hard and bring the whole thing to a grinding halt, which no interviewer wants to do. That's not why you're there. You know, or you have to, in my opinion, signal, you know, or you go along with it, you know, Um, and and I try to sort of steer a middle course and just say, like, look, let me say for the record, you are lying. I know you are lying. My audience knows you are lying. Please continue, you know, and let's move on to the next topic, because because otherwise you you get sucked up into this stuff. Like what would what what happened? And I, I, I think this should give you some hope, some cause for hope and optimism, Michael, Lee's. Remember those briefings he was doing over the coronavirus? It was so crazy and it was so over the top and his numbers plunged so quickly, he just stopped doing it, you know? And, and that, that's really all it takes. If you have faith that the facts are going to bear you out and if you have faith that charlatans cannot prevail forever and you have faith that the, there's a, a, enough of an installed base of common sense in the general population that people can't go but so far... 74 million is a little bit disappointing when you look at the number of people who seem to have wanted four more years of this stuff. But that number is going to come down. It's going to come down to 70. It's going to come down to 65. It's going to come down to 50. A few people are going to have to pass on. A new generation will have to rise. And then I think we can put this behind us. So, you know, it's going to take it's going to take a while. But my, my role to answer your question is to do is, is to do my part. Doing my part means saying to people very clearly, unmistakably, unapologetically, take the heat if it comes and say what that man just said is not true. I'm not going to get into why he said it or what he hopes to get out of it. I'll do the commentary if you want. But my first job is to say what he what the words that just came out of his mouth are not true. 
Now, you're yeah. unique in that respect. Now, of course, you have guys like John Avalon who has the fact check, right? Uh, reality, whatever uh, it's called. Good, good you know, reality good, check. Good reality check, which is great. He's, and, you know, and he shows you specifically where the lie is. The problem with media is most of these interviewers will not do that. And the reason that they won't do that is when you're dealing with a narcissistic sociopath like Trump. Right. If you do what you say that you do, it's a one and done. You'll never get yes. him again. And they're more worried about their ratings and keeping their job at whatever the station may be than it is about exposing the fucking lie. And that's what is going on, including with this gigantic big lie over and over and over again by so mm. many of these various different individuals, whether it's Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, all of them. They know it's a lie, but because they want to play to their constituents and they want to keep being able to get Donald back on because that's who's listening to Fox. That's who's listening to Newsmax and OAN. They want him back on. And I remember once that Sean Hannity, you know, Corey Lewandowski turned around and told Trump that he thinks that Hannity was on Ted Cruz's side and not on his. He got a timeout. He got put into the penalty box and he wasn't able. He was not able to speak to Trump. And Sean, who was a friend of mine at the time, calls up and says, Michael, you got to help me. This is ridiculous. I don't know what's going on. And then I found out and I got Trump on the phone with him. And he's like, you know, well, yeah, you know, just... You, you know, you, you got to follow you got to follow our playbook a little better, Sean. And Sean did. That's not <laughs> journalism. That's bullshit. No, now, no. let well, me ask I mean, you this. I, I, well, well, let me just say for your audience, I had no idea. I've been in this business for a while, for 40 years at this point. I had no idea the kind of money they were making over at Fox until I read Brian Stelter's book. Where you mean, like, you, these you guys mean you're, not making, you're not making 40 million dollars a year? No, 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 not, not you can this, tell my not listeners, year, Michael. <laughs> not, not, you can tell my listeners. Yeah. Even some of the even some of the bit players, like the Fox and Friends, in the morning, each person sitting on the couch, you know, spouting that bullshit every morning. They're making like eight million dollars, thirteen million dollars, and they feel I underpaid. I, I, you know, I was gonna call my agent. I was like, "What the hell? What's going on here?" You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, but I mean, but that that that's the level that's involved. And so people will say literally anything. You yeah, know, absolutely. So let me ask you this then. For many progressives, the honeymoon with President Biden is all but over. I mean, his ability to unite the party was based largely on the fact that he was not Donald Trump. But today, he struggles to make good on many of the promises that he made in the lead up to the election to preserve women's reproductive rights, to expand gun control and pass a sweeping infrastructure and tax bill. Now, add on top of that the chaos in Afghanistan, and Biden is looking vulnerable to the right and, you know, and to the left alike. How do you hold him to account without creating a situation where inner party fighting causes Democrats to lose control of the House and the Senate in the midterms? Well, that's, you know, that, that's right where we are. Look, there, there, there's a certain, there are a certain number of people who I think are probably fatalistic about the midterms. Because, you know, the, I think the average number of seats that the, excuse me, the party in power loses in a midterm is like 45 seats. And Nancy Pelosi does not have 45 seats to lose. I think it's, you know, it's probably single digits at this point. So uh, the, the reality is there are some people who are going to assume that, look, the majority is not even an issue. That's, that's not going to happen. 
Uh, and so I'm going to push as hard as I can to get as much as I can while I can. And you can't fault somebody for doing that. And I think that's what some of the progressives are doing. They're going to try and get as much as they possibly can. Um, so there, there are people who, like I said, fatalistically have decided the majority is not going to happen. There are others who have have the opposite or reached the same conclusion for opposite reason, which is that you have a lot of newcomers. You have, you know, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and the Jamal Bowman's and, the, you know, the, the Cory Bush and, and you know, and, and they have never served in the minority. They don't know how miserable it's going to be. Uh, and I don't think they have a proper um, fear of, of being in the minority where they can't call hearings. They can't call shots. They can't get stuff for their district. It's going to be a miserable at least two years in the cold if that should happen. So I, I think, you know, they're going to they're going to have to listen to if they're smart. What they'll do is listen to some of the old timers. Listen to Nancy Pelosi, only speaker in American history to, you know, to come in twice the way she has. Um, you know, they've got to listen to Chuck Schumer first got elected in 1974 and has never lost an election. You know, these guys, they, 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 they know politics. They know how this stuff works. They should listen to the, the president who, on top of everything else, spent nearly 30 years in the Senate. You know, he, he knows what he is talking about. He knows what he is doing. Uh, and if they push too hard and, and, and forget that the, the, the way to win the game, the way to actually cross the finish line is to come out with a compromise, even if it's ugly, even if it's not perfect, uh, if if they forget that, then they'll lose the majority, and they deserve to lose the majority. You know, I mean, like this is this is this is the big leagues, right? You can't, you know, if it was if it was a sports team, we'd understand that. You 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 got to pass, dribble, and shoot. You got to act as a team. You you can't hog the ball. You know, you can't start chucking stuff from midcourt. You can't just do anything that that pops in your head. You got to act as a team. If they can't do that. They end up like my Brooklyn Nets, you know? I mean, we, we lose. We lose. Yeah. And the problem, though, is there's no conversation anymore. Each side wants everything that they want and only the way that they want it. Republicans are trying to shoot down an infrastructure bill, claiming that it's got all this other pork in it, that it's no good. Let me tell you something. And you're a New Yorker as well. To anybody that's not a New Yorker, our roads in this city of New York are fucking disgusting. It is like Baghdad after a bombing. This is no joke. You have rebar sticking out of the concrete. It's torn my son's tires on his car three times in the last five months. Now he's down in Florida because he's a senior in college. So he's down in Florida. He says the roads are so beautiful. Yeah, right. They he, goes, he goes, it's, it's beautiful. It's flat. It's even. There's no rebar sticking out of the ground. He's never thought about having a flat tire. You come to New York, there's at least one car every time that I have gone out on the side of the street with a blown out tire. This is no joke. You have potholes enough. I saw a woman literally fall into a pothole. I mean, they, literally cars could have driven over without yeah, even yeah, yeah. touching her. That's how deep these potholes wow. are. It is insane what New York City looks like. Our roads are horrible. Our highways are horrible. Our infrastructure, our bridges look like they're falling down. Look, for example, over on like 39th Street, they have the tunnel that goes underneath. It's been what, four or five years? 
but that it's been closed? What, what's the, I mean, seriously, give that to a private individual. We'll have that thing finished in two months. This is insane. What do you think you're doing? You're not building anything. You're just reinforcing it and you're painting it and you're putting up nicer tile, right? With better lighting. Yeah, right, this is absolutely right, right. insane. And then our, our airports are gross, except for now they finally made a couple of improvements at LaGuardia, right? Mm-hmm, the the mm-hmm. bridges are a mess. Everything is a mess. And that's what our country needs. So you, we are literally a third world infrastructure country right now. And this is terrible. On top of that, why should everybody not have access to the Internet? I don't care where you live. And the fact that cell service is spotty all over the place, this is, this is the way we communicate now. Most people don't even have home phones anymore. So the mm-hmm. fact that the Republicans are going to attack this, claiming, well, it's another $3.2 trillion. Donald Trump added $7 trillion. You had Mitch McConnell get up there and say, for the United States to default or not raise the debt ceiling would be un-American. Now, all of a sudden, to raise it is un-American, right? And they just want to kill the Democrats so that the Democrats have nothing to run on in 2022 for the midterms and 2024. That's all that it is. Yeah, no, no you're absolutely right. I mean, listen, one of the, 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 the infrastructure project that drives me the, the craziest, in addition to like not wanting to crack the, the, you know, the, the rims on my car every time I go out in the street, is if we had uh, better mass transit, I don't even mean in the city, I mean like the commuter lines, if they would finally build high-speed rail to connect up parts of this country, it would, it would solve, among other things, the affordable housing crisis, right? Like nobody can find an affordable apartment in New York City. You go north about 100 miles, you can find anything you want. It's just you can't get there. You can't get back and forth to, you know, to Utica. You know, uh, you, you can't you can't get to where the, the jobs are, where the affordable housing is, where the open space is. And that's why we need high speed rail between like, you know, in Florida, say between Tampa uh, and Orlando uh, or between, uh, you know, Milwaukee and Madison up in Wisconsin or between New York and any place, Buffalo and Toronto, you know, whatever it's, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. If, they, if they could get it done, you could transform the country. You're, you're totally right on the Internet. The, you know, it would pay for itself. It you know, would. The, the increased economic activity. From having everybody with access to high speed, uh, and it internet. would create and it would create jobs for people. But Errol, let me thank you. As I said, you know the hour goes by quick. Yes, uh, I want to thank you so much for your insight for forty years worth of insight. Um, keep doing what we're doing, and we do have to continue to have our voices heard. To basically to open up the eyes of these people who are still stuck in the cult of Donald J. Trump and Trumpism. So I thank you oh, for good. your time today. And best of, thanks for having me. Best of luck to you in getting through these, la- these last 50 days. Uh, sometime in uh, 2022 when you're free, we should, uh, we should uh, have a drink. Love to. Thanks so much, Errol. Appreciate right. it. Thank Take you so care. much. Bye-bye. And now for today's Mayor Culpa. In speaking with Errol Lewis, I am reminded that our irreparably damaged political system was not built to withstand someone like Donald Trump. The framers of the Constitution existed in a time well before the Internet and could not have fathomed the type of industrial-level disinformation and propagation of a cult of personality built around just one man. While they were concerned about the rise of a king, they believed that the states themselves would provide a bulwark against such a moment. 
It was impossible, they felt, in the vast decentralized republic for a national figure to rise and hold sway. In a much-read op-ed, Rick Hagan, writing in the Washington Post, said, The framers did not establish safeguards against the possibility that national party solidarity would transcend state boundaries because they did not imagine such a thing was possible. Nor did they foresee that members of Congress, and perhaps members of the judicial branch too, would refuse to check the power of a president from their own party. We have gotten to a place where one man holds this entire nation hostage with his whims and grievances. Not because he himself is all-powerful, but because he controls a vast mob of angry and aggrieved constituents who have themselves become radicalized to the point that will risk death for a man who cares nothing for them other than his ability to hold and maintain power. How and when will this fever break is anyone's guess. My concern, though, is that it is much bigger than Donald Trump. Nonetheless, he remains the tip of the spear. Holding Trump accountable for his crimes is crucial in a time when he feels so emboldened to trample over basic norms. Until the handcuffs are placed on his wrists and faces the inside of a courtroom, Donald will continue to whittle away at what's left of our democracy until there is nothing left. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. 